This episode of Let's Think On It comes from an excerpt from O Brother Radio with Will Lockamy, Reed Lockamy, and Dr. Mark Westfall. First of all, thank you guys for letting me bring just whoever pretty much I think I want to bring. Sure, <laughs> of course. You know, it was suggested recently that we do a segment with you where we interview just you and just find out about you. Oh, yeah? Yeah, people oh. are interested in that, apparently. Oh. Mm-hmm. Which I already know about you, so that's why I, I'm or interested as well, but I just, I don't or know. Or do we? <laughs> I want to do that, too, but I would like to recommend maybe next month, if you haven't thought about your next guest, how about Kim Jong-un? That oh, might be good. Open. That will be awesome. That'd I hear he's good. open. Well, yeah. you know, he's got a slot that just opened up, I think. He, he had a whole week seg- you know, well, not all. set apart. And, yeah. Yeah. I thought about, you know, just one time just walking through good people and just bringing somebody why not like you guys sometimes don't know who i'm bringing i'm like yeah who's this guy well i don't know i just i was walking through thought hey come on you want to be on the radio we'll talk to you we're kind of like-minded there were some kids out here earlier playing football and i kept thinking we should get them on the air (laughs) like that's how my brain works we might should just like once uh i don't know a quarter just say Mm -hmm. okay if you want to be on air we'll uh, we'll pick you and we'll come in and we'll pick your brain well that's not what i did tonight okay Okay. this guy actually has some credentials okay so Art Carden, he is at Sanford. I'm going to let him tell some of his credentials, but he's the economics professor. Um, and, you know, some people I tell who I'm bringing on, they're like, what does that have to do with what you do? I'm like, well, you know, what I do isn't always what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist, by the way, Art, in case you didn't know, because Art and I don't know each other. No. Um, but I got his name from someone who've ha- had on the show before, Fred Shepard. Sure, sure. And um, so this is kind of in line of that, um, uh, you know, not political because he's economics, but that whole kind of looking at how we as humans relate to others. We've talked about it through politics. We've talked about it through a lot of things. But one of the way relate we relate to one another mm-hmm. is economically. Sure. I mean, that's kind of a huge thing about how we interact with others. Factors into our decision-making much more than the average person really thinks about. Doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So to me, it's about relationships. So um, our, we're going to kind of pick Art's brain about whatever he wants to talk about. I've got a few, you know, places I'd like to lead him. Great. Um, but uh, we're going to see what Art has to tell us and teach us about economics. Also, I'll, I'll throw this out there. Um, I asked Fred, I said, all right, you know, I'm also about balance, right? I try to be mm-hmm. from the, if, if there is a continuum, I think this is a generalization, but if there's a continuum of left, right, you know, um, I try to be in the middle. I'm trying to be neutral. I'm kind of like Switzerland. Um, and, you know, we We've had a lot of guests that tend to lean left. I've had some. We've had some guests that lean right. Of course, sure. we remember JT and that whole. Yes, I blocked post. it out. <laughs> okay. um, so I like to have balance, and so um, I asked Fred. I said, Fred, give me someone who's got that you think might be right leaning. I'm not going to speak for Art. I don't know that where he lands, but Fred said, Well, I think this guy's got some good things to say. So Art, that's your lead in. Um, so thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's interesting to hear you talk about having interesting people talking about interesting stuff, and then you bring on an economist. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make it interesting. I, I have a feeling you're going to be already just for I, I hope so. I hope yeah. so. I've seen some of his writings online. So, no. so well, you bring up actually the first question. What is an economist? That's a really good question. Um, so it turns out that there's no hard and fast definition of what it means to be an economist. Like literally anyone can print a business card that says economist on it. Um, is that what and, you did? Hmm? Is that what you did to get <laughs> professorship at 
Sanford? So fortunately, there's some. Uh, there are, are a handful of screening mechanisms that that sort of separate the wheat from the tra- the chaff and kind of get the charlatans out of the way. Um, academic economists generally um, get PhDs and do research and go through all jump through a bunch of different hoops in order to do what they're doing. And then in the private sector, like in the banking system or a lot of banks and various other places, economists will do analytical work. They do data analysis, they'll do forecasting, similar sort of thing when they work for governments or when they work for, say, the Federal Reserve. Um, Pretty much every federal government agency has a small army of economists. So when you read about, say, like the latest gross domestic product report or the jobs report or whatever piece of information came out, there's this this sort of small legion of total nerds who are just sitting there um, we're sitting there doing all of the stuff that the person in the back of the room in your math class in like middle school or high school said, when are we ever going to use this? Well, if you end up becoming an economist for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, then a lot it. of that stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're going to use it. So like looking at variables, crunching numbers, mm-hmm. thinking about every possible scenario and the way it could play out and affects one another and whatnot. Well, so that's one thing that they do. Uh, in some cases, when you're actually producing the data, yeah. though, when we think about gross domestic product, sure. so so gross domestic product, if, if anyone is listening to this and you're going to be taking a principles of macroeconomics exam, gross domestic product is the market value of all finished goods and services produced in a country in a year. Yeah. That's the answer to the question that your professor has asked you on the exam. All right, slow, slow down. <laughs> one, one more time. One more time on GDP, because I think GDP can be a pretty simple thing. Yep. Uh, but it can also sound a little more complicated. Intimidating. Than it is. Okay. So, so, so one more time, GDP in the most layman terms possible. Ah, okay. Cool. So, um, so, so part of what part of say what economists are doing when they're constructing these data for various government agencies and whatnot is they're asking, okay, so what exactly does this thing mean? So we think the market value of all finished goods and services produced in a country in a year. Okay, so market values are really important because if you're because a price is an indicator of the degree to which people value something, and also the degree to which people value all the stuff that goes into producing it. Mm-hmm. So, so a price is a pretty good indicator of kind of what something is worth relative to all the alternatives. Finished goods and services are things like slushies and uh, haircuts. Right. You know, it's the ultimately ultimately. That's what you're consuming, like literally in the case of a slushy. So the reason why, say, sugar has value or the reason why, you know, those little slushy cups and whatnot have value is because they go into the finished good, which is the slushy. And the reason the reason why we count the value of the slushy and not the slushy plus the sugar plus the cup plus the syrup plus the whatever yeah. is then we're double counting or triple counting or whatever. It's like um, we're basically doing what people do when they do these impact reports um, or these impact studies saying that we need to subsidize a stadium or something like that. But that's if I give haircuts, though, and let's say I, may, I give 20,000 haircuts in a year, then and I see how much I charge for all that, mm-hmm. and that goes into the GDP. Right. But now also, I bought scissors. Mm-hmm. Now that's also getting counted, though, right? Because that's ah, a product that... Yes. Yeah, that's know. a good... Yeah, that's a really good point. So scissors would be an example of an investment good. Okay. So um, you, have, you have what are called intermediate goods, and you have investment goods. Intermediate goods... Intermediate goods appear as part of a future good. Okay. So, and there are a lot of there's a lot of places where it's really really fuzzy. So, um, so like the sugar that goes into a slushy is an intermediate good. Um, scissors are something that's used to produce yeah a finished good. So the okay. scissors don't themselves actually appear as part of the right. as part of the haircut. Okay. So we have gotten into a detail, and I yeah. want to pull you back up to sure. an overview. Okay. Really quick though, I have one more before we get out of this. Okay. Go. Really quick. So where do we come up with like the number three 
GDP. We, we want to get it to the number three or the number 2.5. Where does that number come from? Oh, yeah. So basically what they do is um, they add up the market value of all the finished goods and services that were produced in the country in a year. And of course, obviously, they, they like they're not... Um, it's an you, estimate. Yeah. Well, 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 they're not, they're not recording literally every transaction right. that takes place, but in a lot of it's a lot of it's going to be estimated. Right. Um, and there's a lot of ways in which, say, something like GDP is a very, very, very flawed measure. Um, one of my favorite examples is, uh, and this is one of the things that kind of sears it, I hope, into my students students' brains, is when I say, you know, my wife doesn't actually produce anything of value, <laughs> which is just, just of course, is shocking. And any, anyone who is listening to this know that that is totally not true. Not true. But <laughs> household production is something that doesn't get counted as part of gross right. domestic product because there's no market transaction. And so if you think about um, so domestic stuff. Did you stuff. clear that with her before you say that? What's that? that? <laughs> Did you clear that with her before you say that? Oh, she, she, she knows what she got into. <laughs> we, we, we celebrate our 15th anniversary um, in about a month or so. And, and she knew. Like I was, I was already in grad school when I proposed. Oh, she, okay. she knew right. what she had signed up for. But from so. an economist's yeah. viewpoint, mm-hmm. that's the way that's viewed, technically well, speaking. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's, we know that it's valuable. Mm-hmm. Okay, we know that it's valuable, and we know that it's a serious shortcoming of GDP. Sure. Or a serious shortcoming of, of kind of any measure of economic activity. No. Yeah. But something like GDP, we think is it's it's sufficiently highly correlated with the stuff we really want to be able to measure that it's quite literally good enough for government work. Um, and in the case of something like correcting GDP for um, the value of household production, say, the differences are really not that big. Okay. Uh, people try to do it, and yeah. it's, it's a much bigger deal in countries that don't have well-developed markets like we have, but um, <clears throat> it is by no means a perfect measure, certainly, yeah. but again, like I said, it's, it's, it's close enough. But you add all that stuff up, yeah, and then I'll, you think, hey, we're, we're hitting 3% growth. Is that what they're saying when they so say that's, 3 that's is what number we're looking three at? Number 3 is the percent. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, basically, what you do is you take GDP last year, you calculate GDP this year, and uh, divide one by the other, and the difference is the percentage growth rate. Okay. So, Got it. Yeah. There you right. go. Now we know. Uh, yeah, we're at a break, so let's do that really quick, and then when we come back. Yeah, we will. Uh, we will broaden the spectrum and start talking. Pull back about, out. Yeah, pull right. back out. But that's really interesting because I do think that's something that people hear a lot about, especially in the last couple of years, and don't exactly know what GDP means. And this might be the first radio segment in history where the like the first little bit was about national income accounting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Dr. Mark Westfall is with us. We're also talking to Art Carden from Sanford University. He's an economics professor. All right, so Dr. Westfall, we learned what GDP was, we did. which was important. I already have people writing in saying, oh, now I know what GDP is. Uh, nice. Wh- we, how are we teaching as we move? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, people are listening to the radio and actually yeah. learning something. Which I have it's read about. that often. Oh, yeah. Except on your show. Except on the show, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've read about GDP before, and that was a different kind of way of learning about it I, I don't know I feel different about what GDP is now than what I thought it was before yeah all right so and so what people are frequently looking for is an increase or decrease mm-hmm. in GDP yeah. right yeah. correct um so um, what in the world does this have to do with psychiatry because you're a psychiatrist and we have you on the show once a month to talk about stuff with the right, brain right right how so, all that works so I, what I want to move to is kind of relational things between um, how economics affects relationships and and one category I want to move to is relationships between countries. You know, we kind of did that with international relations with Fred Shepard before. Um, And, you know, there's just a lot of interest, I think, in what we're doing as a country with our international relationships and obviously with 
trades and trade agreements and all those things that have been kind of thrown on their heads somewhat with the current administration. And so I'm curious, I've, a couple of questions I want to throw out there to kind of so you can help educate us. First question is, is there a spectrum of liberal and conservative economists? And don't answer yet. So that's part of the question. If so, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? And that may be a generalization and you don't put yourself anywhere if you don't want to. And then secondly, what would be the different arguments for how to approach trade with other entities? Um, you know, to me, I think trade is a fascinating thing because can you ever have really something, is there anything such as quote unquote fair trade? Because really, isn't everybody looking out for the best part of the deal? I mean, it's like, so. With those questions, mm -hmm. is that something you can speak to from an economist standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. So there's definitely a political spectrum within economics um, kind of running from left to right. The the representative economist, economist is probably like a center-left Democrat, um, but a center-left Democrat who understands that the price of gas is set by supply and demand. So, um, so they understand the basics of right. economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of so there's a lot of disagreement among economists on like technical nerd issues, but fundamentally, the the areas where we really agree are are many. So things again, like I said, price of gas is like prices get the price of gas is set by supply and demand. It's not like people wake up one morning and decide to be mean. Like it's supply and demand sure. straightforward. Trade is, is one of those issues where left, right, center. Uh, so Paul Krugman, who writes for the New York Times, yeah. he's probably the, his blog is called The Conscience of a Liberal. Um, he won the Nobel Prize for discovering possible exceptions to the case for free trade. And he said, if there's an economist creed, it's I understand comparative advantage and I believe in free trade. Okay. And Say that again. Those are two things that right. pretty much every economist would agree on. Is that yes. What you're yes. And those two things are again. I believe in comparative, or I understand comparative advantage, and I believe in free trade. Can you define each of those in yeah. a nutshell? Yeah. So, kind of going backwards. So, free trade would be let anybody trade with anybody. No, no tariffs, no right. quotas, no restrictions, none of that. Like we're not making America great again by by putting tariffs on steel and aluminum and and solar panels and what have you. And comparative advantage is. Um, so something something that economists have long known to be well, so so someone once asked a great economist named Paul Samuelson like what's what's an idea in economics that's both really important and not obvious and he said comparative advantage um, it's the reason why they're not going to take our jobs mm -hmm. whoever they happen to be whether they be workers in China or whether they be workers in the United States who happen to have come from China or Mexico or India or God knows where because everybody's blessed with a different skill set. And in particular, um, <clears throat> in particular, even somebody who's really, 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 really good at everything should specialize in whatever he or she has a comparative advantage in. And so what we do when we do examples in class where we talk about comparative advantage, what we're looking at is opportunity cost. Right. So we're looking to see who gives up the least in order to do something. And um, this summer, so we have, we have three kids, um, they'll turn 10, 8, and 6 this summer. And so part of what we're doing this summer is we're helping their grandparents in the garden. And uh, I kind of hammer this a little bit in, in classes. Like, you think you're saving money, but you're not. 
So we're, we're referring to it now as like Nana and Papa's home of the hundred dollar tomato. Right. Okay. Why is that? So why is why why is Nana and Papa's garden now the home of the hundred dollar tomato? Okay. Well, you know, my comparative advantage is not in gardening. I give up a lot in order to garden. In fact, I've got like some blisters and whatnot. But I could spend an hour gardening. Or I could spend an hour prepping economics lectures and writing articles and stuff like that. The best use of my time is is almost certainly doing economics and not gardening. From so, a financial standpoint. Yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah, and that's that's a re- that's a really right. important point. Sure. It's a really important point because there's there's a lot more to life than money. Sure. Obviously, and yeah. and gardening with the family is fun and, and things like that. But it's it's. If you're doing something like that because it's fun, that's great. If you're doing something like that because you think you're saving money, then you're probably not. So, so the, the classic examples of, of things like comparative advantage would be, you know, I can specialize in uh, writing economics articles and teaching, and I can take the money I earn and I can pay for groceries, I can pay for food grown by somebody who has a comparative advantage in growing tomatoes, we'll say, and who doesn't really give up a whole lot of economics lectures, say, in order to spend time growing the tomatoes. So is it the premise that people with comparative advantage will essentially find their field and do it? That, that, yeah. that, that the, the um, dynamics, mm-hmm. if you will, of economics mm-hmm. or of society yeah. is that if left f- mm-hmm. to in a free trade and, mm-hmm. and a, I guess, it, is this only typically happen in a democratic environment or? Um, yeah, so it can happen. It can actually happen in non-democratic environments. Okay. But that if uh, left to its own, mm-hmm. people will find their comparative advantage right. place and do it. Yeah, okay. that's why profits and losses are so important. That's why profits and losses are so important. So, so a profit, a profit is a pat on the back from the invisible hand, right? Saying, "Hey, you've done a good job. You've taken, you've taken barley and malt and hops and all sorts of stuff, and you've made beer." You made a finished good that people like. That people worth, wanted the that thing. People yeah. want, mm-hmm. and that is worth more than the malt and the barley and the hops and all the other stuff would have been uh, would have been worth in anything else you could have done yeah. with it. Um, <clears throat> a loss, on the other hand, is kind of a slap on the face from the invisible hand, saying, "Look, you've taken resources, you've taken you've taken valuable resources, and you've in fact wasted them. You've turned them into something that is less valuable." An example I use in class. Um, so every year Frito-Lay has this like name your own potato chip flavor mm-hmm. contest. And one year someone proposed, set, proposed a, a toothpaste and orange juice mm-hmm. as a potato chip flavor. Mm-hmm. So ask students. Don't go together. Yeah, well, right, yeah. So ask students, okay, how, how, imagine that Frito-Lay were to do this. Like, would they make money? It's like, no, they wouldn't because, I mean, maybe you have like people making bar bets. You know, over here at Good People with, with toothpaste and orange juice potato chips. And maybe you know, like people, uh, or uh, hazing fraternity pledges or like something. Like a gag or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But, that's about but, it. Yeah. but odds are those are not going to be a profitable venture. So right. the, the loss that Frito-Lay would incur is the market's way of saying, and when I say the market, I'm talking about everybody in the world voting with their money, saying you've taken potatoes and you've taken flavoring, you've taken whatever else goes into potato chips, and you've wasted it. Yeah. So profits and losses direct people toward their comparative advantage, and ultimately we get... Maximal output for minimum costs. And then one of the things that people feel uncomfortable about, I guess mm-hmm. understandably, but it's definitely a complex thing, is when someone like Goldman Sachs does a poor job, mm-hmm. and then someone's like, oh, you've done a poor job, uh, but we're going to make that okay for you anyway. Yeah, that's um, that's been one of the major serious problematic lessons of, say, sure. probably about the last 10 years. Um, people have said, well, you're too... 
firms like Goldman Sachs say, oh, they're too big to fail or too big right. to, to whatever. Well, okay, so the, so now they've loaded up the asset side of their balance sheet with crap because they know that they can take lots and lots and lots and lots of risks. And if they win, then great, they keep so, all the money. So it win. artificially if lose, changes the dynamics that are inherent yes, in right. yes. competitive advantage and uh, free markets. And it, yeah. it takes away the, the natural drives and therefore yeah. makes it an artificial... Yeah, well it, ta- well, it takes away the discipline. It takes yeah. away the discipline. So imagine that you're, uh, imagine you're at a, at a roulette wheel, or something like that, and you know that any money you lose, the house is just going to pay you back. Yeah. Okay. So you, it changes heavy. your behavior. Yeah. I. E. Absolutely. It's the psychology mm-hmm. behind yeah. people's behaviors of profit and loss. So. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, more. What are we going to? What are we going to get to? Uh, I'll let you know at the end. I don't know. Let me okay. think. All right, cool. <laughs> hey, so we hang out with Dr. Mark Westfall once a month. We're doing that again, of course, tonight. And we have Art Carden here with us from Stanford University. He's an economist and a, a raging uh, Republican. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, because right. That's so funny. When we set up the thing, I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, we're going to have this kind of political back. And, of course, we've done none of that, which is totally fine. Yeah, no. yeah. Well, I asked, him, I asked him to kind of put himself on a so. spectrum of left-right, which, again, is categorical. But mm-hmm. I do that in order to... Uh, help people recognize that you can't put people in categories. Right. Where would you put him, uh, Will? Gosh, at this point, uh, nowhere. I, I I keep thinking, man, I bet Art and I would hang out together. That's what I keep thinking well, in my head. You were out of like, the room we, during the break, and yeah. so you're going to find out why. Art, where would you put yourself, roughly? Yeah, so I would, uh, I would call myself a libertarian. I uh, have been for a very long time. Um, basically, so this, in some sense... Socially liberal to a degree, fiscally conservative. Um, I always said about myself up yeah. until no. this last year or two. Yeah, and and in, in large part, in large part, that's because that's because I don't trust I don't trust people to control other people with violence. Um, when we think about why, like everybody, you know, the world's fallen. Like everybody's fallen. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And and um, some people say, therefore, they need to be controlled. Well, the last thing in the world I want is these people who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God to be controlling other people. Mm-hmm. So if you think about what. Um, if you think about what people can do when they have access to power, it can get really, really scary. Sure. But at the so, same time, mm-hmm. if we don't have, well, I don't know. It's an well, so this yeah, is, so, no question. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Well, economic, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, so I was going to say this, this is, is, this is one of the real tensions of, of like historical political economy. No. Um, so a lot of my, my research is in economic history and uh, one of my mentors in one of his books, he said, you know, the state is, um, the state is a source of economic growth, but it's also, or it said, no, excuse me. The state is necessary for economic right. growth, but it's also the source of man-made economic decline. Right. So, um, so governments are probably inevitable, if perhaps unnecessary. And um, if we didn't have a state, we wouldn't have a structure to allow all of the heights that we have reached. Pro- probably. I mean, you could make an argument that it's it takes a complex society like ours mm-hmm. to get to the technological improvement that we've. You know, uh, had I mean, you can make the. I mean, when you look at the influence of NASA, for example, that doesn't just happen because a couple of people said. Of course, Elon Musk maybe hurts my argument at right, this point. Right? Yeah. So, well, in, in the case of in yeah. the case of NASA, though, it's 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 NASA's brought us some pretty cool stuff. I mean, I guess what Velcro and vacuum sealed coffee yeah. and Tang. Yeah. yeah. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, yeah. Tang. But um, it's it's this again is is one of the reasons why profits and losses are so important. Right. Because it's it's not. In the absence of profits and losses, we can't tell whether these resources are being used wisely or not. Yeah. So my eight, my nine year old's asking me the other day. He's like, "Dad, can you can you land on the surface of a gas giant?" And I'm like, "I'm an economist, son. <laughs> and I, I got a B minus in astronomy my you know, my <laughs> freshman year of college. Like, it's yeah, you know, I'm not the person to ask. Fortunately, we can go to YouTube and find out. 
And of course, we know, or at least presumably they've, they've figured out a whole lot about how Jupiter works and all this other stuff, and that's amazingly cool. Mm-hmm. But again, um, in the absence of profits and losses and market tests, it's not clear that those were the best use of the resources sure. that went into, into right. finding out cool stuff about Jupiter. Yeah. And this is hard, because like, like all the stuff that governments do, like supporting the arts and basic science and all this other wonderful stuff, I personally benefit from that a lot. Like It's all stuff that I think is awesome. Um, but it's not clear to me necessarily that these are the best uses of resources from a social perspective. Right. So from a government standpoint, mm-hmm. since we have one, mm-hmm. um, are there, and I presume you steer away from government regulations, right. are there any regulations you can think of in the last 50 years or mm-hmm. more that you think were necessary or helpful? I mean, can you list a couple of helpful regulations and then give me a couple of yeah. ones that you think have been just unhelpful well, economically speaking so I, I don't know but I don't know about regulations that I would call helpful Let's say policies policies that are less bad than others um, one would be something like something like the earned income tax credit so moving away from kind of welfare as we know it so to speak and more in the direction of pure income transfers I think that's that's a much 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 better way to do helping poor people than a lot of the other things that we do in, in the name of uh, you know um, in the name of the welfare state, you know, welfare, or, uh, food stamps and housing subsidies and, and minimum wages and all this other stuff that come with a lot of distortions. Purely transferring wealth is, a again, I think a much, much, much better way to do that. Um, what do you mean by purely transferring wealth? Taking money from one person and giving it to another. Right. Just, attached. So, okay. yeah. um, <clears throat> so the, the, the earned income tax credit is an example of what, what's called a negative income tax. So basically, so, so it is never it is never not in your best interest in mm-hmm. some sense to work. One of the big problems that we have with a lot of uh, a lot of the way that welfare in some sense is structured is these problems of the, these cliffs in what are called implicit marginal mm-hmm. tax rates, which this is is basically nerd speak for how much of your next dollar do you pay to the government in taxes, or how much do you pay directly and then also give up. So a way to think about it is imagine that you. You're, you're, you're a single mom and you're trying to decide whether to get a job or not. And you know you can go out and you get a job and you make $20,000. Well, okay, you make $20,000, but you give up $10,000 worth of housing vouchers and $10,000 worth of SNAP benefits, then your implicit marginal tax rate is 100%. Um, if there's one idea in economics is that people respond to incentives. Right. And if... Which is also a primary rule in psychology. Oh, absolutely. That, that is a basic human tenet, is yeah. that people respond to incentives. Pretty it's much be everyone right. agrees on that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. and if people, if if high-income people aren't going to work more or aren't going to work as hard if uh, facing a marginal tax rate of 70%, then no one's going to work hard at a marginal tax rate of 100%. And kind of parenthetically, I think this, and to get to the, to the psychology of a lot of this, I think that can be one thing that becomes very, very corrosive of the social fabric is people observe folks making what are, what are 100% rational economic decisions, which is stay home and take care of your kids if there's literally no benefit to working. And for a variety of different reasons that you understand way better than I do, um, we tend to construct stories about that that are, are sure. at times very odious. Problematic, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, though, because I think it... I don't know. 
I don't know. I mean, I think part of what had me veer away from my mm -hmm. uh, previous libertarian um, mm -hmm. sort of viewpoints was that I think libertarianism works really, really well mm -hmm. if you assume or if you believe that we have a system that really is fair and equal, you know, offers equal opportunity across the board. And I, I don't and that people are all kind and caring. Yeah. And well, or even if they're not, if it's mm -hmm. just fair and we all potentially can move up at around, about the same rate. Yeah. And boy, I've just really come to worry about that in recent years. And that, and that has changed the way I've seen that. Well, like I, I, I mentioned this during the break, that's yeah. one of the reasons I don't trust power. Right. Um, so I read, I saw this on Reddit one time. So I mean, you see it on Reddit. It's definitely it's true. true. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's a headline <laughs> yeah. on Reddit saying that some enormous percentage of C-suite executives for major corporations are, are sociopaths. Sure. And... Um, so, so one question might be, well, so does that impugn capitalism in some way? And I really, I, I think that's a feature rather than a bug of a free market system. Because if you take people with these pathological personalities, I would much rather have them trying to sell me soap mm -hmm. than having them you know, lead an army and burning my crops and taking my horses. Yeah, keep them busy so, with the income yeah, so, thing. Yeah. So like, a, like a, a very, very, very limited government with um, sharp, sharp, sharp constraints on power. Like in that world, Donald Trump is a real estate investor in New York and builds some casinos in Atlantic City. Yeah. Um, the more you create power, the more people are attracted to that. And I prefer the world in which Donald Trump is a real estate investor to the world in which Donald Trump has his finger on the nuclear button sure. and you know the ability to make tariff policy and right. immigration policy and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Professor Cardin, how long are your classes? At Stanford, like, what's the link? So on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, there's 65 minutes. When I teach Tuesday, Thursday, it's an hour 50 with a 10-minute break. Okay. So. That would fly by for me. <laughs> I mean, look at this. We're at, we're coming up on our last segment. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like we're just getting oh, wow. to know each He's other. He's got a lot of info in there, in yeah. that cranium. Yeah. No question. Um, all right, we're also hanging out with Art Carden. He is a professor at Stanford, professor of economics, and we're we're learning stuff. We're getting learnt. Sure, tonight. we are. Yeah. Um, all right, final segment. What do we got? Yeah, yeah. So we got what about ten minutes? Yeah. All right. So um, let's move to a little bit more of an, a global scale. Yep. Because one of the concepts I have trouble trying to wrap my head around is how do you take countries that have clearly different income levels, gross mm -hmm. domestic product, gross yep. domestic product. Now we know what that is. Yeah. Um, standard of living, mm -hmm. workforce pay, um, resources, and have them trade. Mm -hmm with another country over here mm -hmm. in any form or fashion that can be made quote-unquote fair. I mean, in the from an economist standpoint, are there, I'm sure there are a lot of different approaches to how to figure that out. And you already mentioned that most economists would say tariffs in general are not right. the route to go. But if other countries aren't playing by the same rules, then how do you not mimic some of their bad behaviors? I mean, you know, give me some thoughts on that. Yeah, so so here, this is, I think, where the the psychologists need to help us a lot in terms of figuring this out because the story that economists have been telling since Adam Smith is is that unilateral free trade is to our advantage as a country. Every country, unilateral free to trade. Every, it's not just every our country, country but right. every country's advantage. Uh, and even if even if other countries are appear to, quote, be not be playing by the rules or whatever, um, that's still good for us. So let's imagine, for example, that as, as is... As, 
always being charged. You know, China is subsidizing certain co companies so they can export to the United States. So basically what they're doing in that case is they're taxing their own citizens to buy us stuff. Mm -hmm. it, like the redistribution is perverse because the, the, per capita income in China is way lower than per capita income in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so effectively what the Chinese government is doing then is they're taxing poor people in China to buy nice things for rich Americans and do this under the guise of helping very specific industries. And again, on net, though, they're worse off as a result. So right. it is, it's always in our best interest. So is it not to steer them to buy goods from their own country more? I mean, is it, is it not to... In other words, are they still buying the goods, or are they just not buying goods because they're so expensive, and they're and or buying goods from other countries that are less expensive? Well, so it's there are a lot of different things that are that are going on. Um, so in one case, when we think about export subsidies, it's specifically a government that's handing money to companies that export stuff. So they tax they tax some people, they give the money to those companies, and that makes those companies' exports cheaper in the world market, and then they're able to undercut, you know, say American companies that could be producing the same sort of stuff. In terms of what that does for Americans, and th this again is where, where stuff gets, you know, things are not always what they seem, um, <clears throat> just pick a specific, a specific good, so say aluminum. So suppose that the Chinese government decides to, to subsidize aluminum production, and uh, that means- So that who's aluminum production? Chinese aluminum production. Okay. So they, they, they aluminum company of China, whatever. Um, that means we get cheaper aluminum, and all the resources we're currently using to produce aluminum, we can deploy elsewhere. Walk me through that. How are they subsidizing? How would China subsidize aluminum? Oh, so they would tax their own people, and then they would tell various aluminum companies, we'll give you, I don't know, a dollar per metric ton or whatever. Make it more worth your while right, yeah, to yeah, make yeah, this. Yeah, 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 exactly, to say, you know, we will give you money when you export. And then they make even more money by selling that same stuff to the Brits and calling it aluminum. Yes. Yeah, it's very yes. smart. Yeah, very yeah. Smart. That's actually my back of the envelope theory yeah. for why American standards of living are a little bit higher than, say, like <laughs> British and Canadian. Is you know we're not putting U's and I's everywhere they don't belong. Is there not like a big box <laughs> store sort of effect here though? Because I mean, some people are concerned. Like, hey, look, yes, a uh, we'll call it Walmart mm -hmm. uh, can do this very cheaply, yep. and they're taking a loss on the front end. But the major plan is to put their competitors out of business, and they can outlast those people, and then eventually they'll just take over. Is that not sort of the game that China is playing at the price of their impoverished? Population. Well, that's that's one argument again that could be made. But if if in fact Walmart or yeah. China or whoever is taking a loss on the front end, then if you know this, you can buy up all the inventory. Yeah. And like you, you buy you, you buy up everything at something that's say lower than your cost of production. Right. Then you can resell it at at whatever would be the minimum price that the market would bear. There's there's really not a whole lot of evidence to suggest that predatory pricing is is an effective long run strategy. Oh. Uh, Despite yeah. companies like Walmart and right. Not okay, Martin. Yeah. Whatnot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Or, so, or, hmm. or you're saying know. in the long run that is not going to be a competitive strategy for right. things yeah, like yeah, Walmart. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's what not, yeah, it's not what do economists think will happen in the long run? Because um, so, right now it seems to be working. Yeah. Well, so profits attract entry. Profits attract entry. So if Walmart starts making more money than than they could in any other line of business, then the Margots and the yeah. not okay Marts and the beers and the whoever they're going to enter the market. Yeah. and provide effectively the same sort of services and the same sorts of goods for, for similar prices. Now, we think about... Which, think again, the whole theory of yeah. competition will, mm -hmm. will, will make things yeah. levelized again. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so when we think about, uh, we think about Walmart, 
uh, specifically. Malmart. Yeah, Mal- sure. uh, sorry, Malmart. Uh, sorry. Yeah. I apologize. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I'm actually, this is actually one of my research Only because you can say yeah. Walmart all night long. Okay. I just think that's really yeah. funny. That you guys kept, <laughs> okay, for that long, you guys kept saying Walmart. And okay. I was like, this is the so best thing that's happened. This is one of your research yeah. areas. Yeah, so I've done a lot of work on, yeah. on Walmart and its effect on various things. And when we think about how Walmart affects a local economy, like yeah. if you're if you're competing directly with Walmart or competing, like if you sell hammers and Home Depot opens next door, yeah, then that's a bad thing, right? Um, but one of the big things that, that the Walmart's and and Moe's and whatnot of the world will do is to lower prices on various things that then effectively put more dollars in people's pockets so they can spend it on things like beer at Good People. Sure. So so there are there's there's some displacement in mm-hmm. some markets. But it creates additional opportunities elsewhere. Yeah, I guess my my only fear, and look, obviously you know way more about this than I do. My only fear is that if uh, you know uh, a big box um, uh, hardware store can put my local hardware mm-hmm. store and all the other ones out of business. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, the incentive to offer the lower prices goes away a little bit, and they're able to make big profits off of me while we wait for other stores to come in and get established. I don't know. It's a, it feels well, the dangerous. Pro- the, the profits, yeah. yeah, the profits really aren't going to be that substantial. Yeah. And when we think about how we think about how competitive markets work, so Walmart offers a specific product, right. Target offers sort of a specific product, and those products include the experience. So if you want to talk to someone who really, really knows their stuff. Then you're probably going to do that at, at mom and pop's hardware. Sure. Or I remember seeing a, it was an advertisement in the Wall Street Journal actually when I started teaching at Rhodes College. And uh, oh gosh, I think it was still the company that makes chainsaws. Yeah. Had like this giant full page ad in the Wall Street Journal saying you will never find our product in Lowe's or Home Depot or anywhere like that because we're only going to sell through outlets where you go in and by God they know the product, they know how chainsaws work, their life is chainsaws, their whole sort of whole sort of everything is, mm-hmm. is intense, detailed knowledge about what makes a good chainsaw. And um, it's great. I think that there's a market for that. Oh, and they've stuck to that? Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I still and wouldn't start the other day, by the way. I gotta, <laughs> now, granted, I've had it for a really long time. Yeah. i got to find well, a small... Get, well, now you need to take it to the place you yeah. got it because they know what to do. I it's, guess, yeah, it, find a small-time yeah. guy. Yeah. And, yeah. Will's still is very still. <laughs> right. Yeah. At the still. moment. Yeah. Uh, man, this is all fascinating. Have you ever seen... Uh, you and I both have kids mm-hmm. not together separately. Uh, <laughs> so I know that it's tough to like watch movies and TV and stuff like that. But... Uh, it was recommended to me by our friend Justin Hill, who mm. he's a beekeeper. East Aboga mm. Bee Company, the, the best, oh, cool. the okay. best honey you can find. Uh, but Justin said, "Hey, if you want to learn a lot about the bee industry, watch this documentary series called Rotten on okay. Netflix. It's a Netflix original okay. documentary series, and the first episode of Rotten talks about the bee industry and this economy and tariffs." Mm-hmm. And I learned more from that first episode about tariffs and how they can work and can't work and how countries try to get around them. Mm-hmm. It was so interesting. So if you haven't watched it, listeners and oh, cool. art okay. as well, uh, Rotten is what it's called. Okay. And it's right there on Netflix. So, Excellent. I'm always yeah. looking for a good binge watch. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. It's a, yeah. it's a, I mean, it's nerdy in a sense, but not really. It's very interesting as well. Yeah. yeah so. Well, actually, one of my one of my students presented. Uh, so, end of the semester, we spend the last two weeks. Students giving presentations, and a student gave a presentation on on how her dad, the executive at TIA Craft, started his own beekeeping enterprise. Yeah. And how this was financially, in some sense, not a really good idea. But you know, I, I was 
keeping bees is fun and you make your own honey and it sounds great yeah um but yeah so this sounds this sounds really interesting cool. yeah. yeah it's awesome I, sadly we are out of time man we got to just revisit this at some point yeah. yeah 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 thanks for having us of though. course sure. man you dr guys. mark westfall uh art carden from sanford university professor of economics there real pleasure to meet you man yeah great to meet y'all too yeah. we didn't so fight once we, <laughs> as promised uh, oh we can change that okay. we can change right. that so fisticuffs off the air tonight that's we'll, right we'll facebook live it <laughs> <laughs> to listen to dr mark westfall live check out O brother radio on birmingham mountain radio 107.3 fm in birmingham 97.5 in tuscaloosa at bhammountainradio.com or on the free bmr app join in with your questions and comments on twitter at lockamy brothers <laughs>